Um, we teach through the Bible in our Sunday worship gatherings. I think uh, everyone here knows that. It's our main method of teaching, walking through books of the Bible. So uh, four Sundays a year, we do what we did last Sunday. We gather <clears throat> as uh, a people of, of God in the city somewhere, practicing one of our everyday rhythms of worship, not in a, a way to devalue Sunday mornings, but in a way to elevate everyday worship. And then so 48 Sundays a year, we gather here as one body, and uh, probably f- more than 40 of those, uh, we walk through a book of the Bible. And um, there's a reason for that. Uh, not only, number one, it's biblical, we think. We think it's what the early church did. We think it's the best use of the scriptures, just to walk through them and understand the revelation of God. Uh, but also, we're not smart enough to figure out what each of you need each and every Sunday that we gather here. I mean, there's a wide variety of fears, uh, sins, idolatries, habits, anxieties, worries uh, that, that, that are represented in this room, uh, even on a Sunday like today where we don't have as many people as normal. Like, I, I could not come up with a list of this is exactly what I can cover to take care of every issue that's in this room that's in every heart represented. And so we're not, we're not only smart enough because we can't diagnose all the issues that are represented, but we, we're not even smart enough to come up with specific remedies. Like, okay, there's this issue, I need this verse, and this issue, I need this verse. And so our confidence is not in our ability to come up with, like, creative sermon series. Okay, here's your ten biggest problems, and we're going to take care of these over the next ten weeks. There'll be, like, a hundred other things that we don't even touch. Uh, we have zero confidence in our ability to, to do that. Um, we have unshakable confidence, though, in the Word of God. It's not because, guys, the Bible um, answers all of our questions or the Bible specifically solves all of our problems. It's not because the Bible is like a roadmap to life and it tells you exactly which direction to turn, turn left here, turn right here, and it shows us exactly to do in every situation. The Bible is not intended to do that. It's because the Bible, the Scriptures, have, when God breathed them out as He inspired men to write this down, He breathed into the Scriptures His very character, His very nature, so that we can know Him. The Bible is a relational book. It's intended to be written, uh, or understood rather, read, understood, studied, memorized, out of a relationship with the author of Scripture. So that we would know him, so that his spirit would fill us, so that his spirit would guide us according to the precepts, according to the principles of scripture. So that our life would reflect the life that that the Bible has come to demonstrate that this is the life that Jesus came to give us. The life that Jesus lives himself. So the Bible is alive. The Bible is the the living word of God. The Bible is active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's cutting us. It's healing us with the gospel. This is the Bible, it's powerful, right? It will not return into him void. He who sends it out. We, like today, this word is going to do a work in you. I have, have full confidence. Not because I'm a great preacher or I articulate things well or whatever. It's because I'm just preaching the Bible. Like here's the scriptures. And the Holy Spirit is going to do this work through the scriptures that, that only he could do. And so that, that's where our confidence is. Uh, the Bible has, has power uh, to, to save. Even people who are who are not believers, just by reading the scriptures. I read just this week a story about a world-renowned Greek scholar by the name of Dr. E.V. Reu, who was hired by Penguin Publishing to translate ancient works of the Greco-Roman world, like Homer's works, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and translate these ancient works from Greek 
into modern English so that we can sell these books. And so he did. And then later on, they hired him to translate the uh, Gospels from the Koine Greek, the common everyday Greek, into English so they could, so they could sell that. And um, this world-renowned Greek scholar was hired to do this, and his son was very intrigued by this because his son knew that his dad, 60 years old, was, was a lifelong agnostic. Um, not an atheist, but just he couldn't know, so he didn't want to believe. And so he, he, he made the comment, it's going to be interesting how dad reads the Gospels. It's going to be even more interesting how the Gospels read dad. And sure enough, a year into translating the Gospels from Greek into English, uh, Dr. Reu becomes a believer, a committed follower of Christ. And the Gospels change him. The Word of God has a power to do that. And so it's even more so for those who are already in the family because the, the same Holy Spirit that inspired the Word of God is the same Holy Spirit that fills us, the same Holy Spirit that illuminates the Scripture so we can see what the Bible is trying to say, same Holy Spirit that helps us to apply the, the, the teachings of Scripture to our life, and it's the same Holy Spirit that then empowers us to be able to go out and live out the Scriptures. And so this is why we preach the Bible. On Sunday mornings, we get a heavy dose of Scripture in your DNA groups. All right, so if you're not in DNA, we're continually going to push you toward that. Uh, we're going to spend time talking about that more at the retreat in a couple of weeks, uh, February 19th through 21st. Um, in your DNA, you're going to get a heavy dose of Scripture. That allows our MCs to gather as a family of missionary servants to, to, to share life, to be family, to eat meals, to, to pray for one another, one another, to care for one another, to talk about how your mission is going and, and how it can look differently. So on Sunday mornings, we walk through Colossians. We've walked through Jonah, all of that. Y'all can listen to it if you haven't been here already for that online. We alternate Old Testament with the New Testament because we don't want to be one a church that's heavy in one side of the Bible and not the other side. So we did Jonah in, in November. Now we're back to the New Testament. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to walk through the Gospel of Mark starting today through next summer. All right, So summer of 2017, uh, Lord willing, we'll finish the Gospel of Mark. Um, and so remember... Because we see every person who is a part of the Crossing Church as a leader, as a disciple maker, as a missionary in our city and the world, you are not a consumer. You're not here for a show. You're not coming like you come to a restaurant or a movie. How, how am I going to be thrilled or entertained or appeased by what I see or what I experience? You're not coming so we can stick the milk bottle in your mouth and feed it to you, spoon feed it to you. You're coming with a big fork and a serrated knife, and you got a big napkin on your neck, and you're coming to dig into the Scriptures, to feast on the Word of God. You're, you're coming to partake. Like, like I want to see, and I want to know, and I want to be trained and equipped. Everything that we pour into you is intended for you to pour into somebody else. Because everyone has somebody that they're leading, everyone has somebody they're influencing, everyone has somebody that they're pouring into also. So this is, this is not a, a, you know, is this a five-star Sunday or a four-star Sunday? Not many people are here, so it's a three-star Sunday. No, forget all that. This is, a, this is training for battle, right? And so every single Sunday we gather together, you're being trained and equipped to go into your life, back into the war, to train and equip others that you have the, the opportunity to do that with. Um, we're all involved in leading somebody, hopefully multiple people, closer to Jesus. So everything we give you is not intended to stop. It's intended to be shared. So, so with that said, my, our encouragement is study Mark with us. Don't just come and, okay, what are we going to learn about Mark? Like, come already knowing the passage before we teach it. 
Um, I would encourage you to, to take time not just to read through Mark. I mean, obviously you can read the book of Mark in the next 18 months. But, but take time to, to sit down in one setting and read the entire book of Mark. It might take you an hour to two hours, depending on how fast you read. Uh, just like they would have done in the early church when they received it. How excited they must have been, right, to get this letter from Mark. And let's, let, let's read. Let's, let's be reminded of the story of Jesus. Maybe even listen to Mark. As you'll find out later, Mark is a book that's intended to be shared orally, some of the details and the imagery that it has. So, so go to like your favorite Bible app or go online and listen to the Gospel of Mark read. Maybe try a different translation of the Bible. To, to maybe you want to try out a different translation to see if it helps you um, understand Scripture better. Maybe, maybe try to read it in the original Greek or read it in the, go, go back and read it in the original Aramaic if that floats your boat. Um, have fun with all that. But um, we'll be uh, also sharing some resources with you. So get a good study Bible. Maybe even be willing to buy a commentary to learn Mark, to know Jesus through the eyes of Mark. When you come across passages that, that raise questions like, okay, what is, what is that? Why do you say that? And what, why is this happening? What's the significance of that? You know, write them down. Send them to me, Scott or Kendrick. So when we get to those passages, we'll make sure we cover those questions. Today, we're going to really kind of walk through an overview of the book of Mark before getting into the passages of chapter 1 next week. And so my prayer is that the Spirit of God will work in us in a way that our hearts will be drawn to engage with the gospel of Mark over the next 18 months in a very deep and significant way. Right? Uh, I've been on a, an unsubscribe obsession lately. You know, all the marketing emails you get from uh, the stuff you buy online and, and websites that you visit, they just start pounding you with all these marketing emails. And, and usually I'm just delete, 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 delete. But lately, I've, like the last two weeks, I'm just unsubscribing from everything, just crushing them, killing them. Like, like in the old days, when you get telemarketing calls right before dinner and you didn't have caller ID and you pick up the phone and somebody wants to say something, you just slam the phone down. That's kind of what I'm doing with email. Just get out of my life. I'm tired of y'all. So that's the exact opposite of what we're asking you to do with the book of Mark. So don't unsubscribe, but subscribe. Like buy in, dig in, engage with the gospel of Mark. Get to know Jesus so that, guys, as you're sharing your stories, you're sharing life with people, and and you're talking to people about Jesus, and you're explaining who Jesus is, like for the rest of your life, you will come back to the gospel of Mark. And you will say, this, this is who Jesus is because of this story and this teaching. And, and this is how we can know Jesus did this and said this because of how I engaged with the gospel of Mark in 2016 and 2017. So let's, let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity we have to come every Sunday. We, we woke up with breath. We woke up with life. Our hearts are beating. Our mind is thinking. We have ears to hear, eyes to see. And, and by your spirit, we have a heart to receive truth about you this morning. So God, help us not to go through the motions today, but to truly, deeply, in the deepest part of our soul, engage with you. Father, we would, we would press into how your spirit wants to, wants to speak to our hearts today. And so, Father, we, we pray you would make us that kind of people. Um, Father, we, we also pray for our brother, Scott, as he walks through his dad's illness um, that you would just, your spirit would be there, that as Kelly and Scott are at the hospital, the very presence of Christ would be there. They would know the, the peace, the strength, the comfort that only comes through Christ. And that, God, you would just work to continue to heal Mr. George and heal his body and restore his health so he can continue to live proclaiming you. And Father, we, we all know that people we love are going to leave one day. They're going to go home to be with Jesus. And so, um, even now, begin preparing their heart for that day, whether it be soon or 
a long time from now. Father, we thank you that Jesus crushed death. So death is not ever something we have to be afraid of. Um, Father, do a work in that family as only you can do for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Mark is a type of literature, as you know, that we call a gospel. Four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Good. It's unique in that it's a narrative literature, so it basically tells a story. It's distinct from other types of literature in the Bible, like the epistles, uh, which make up most of the New Testament, which is a letter written from a a person to a group of people, or it's distinct from uh, the apocalyptic literature, like Revelation or, or parts of Daniel. Uh, it's distinct from the Old Testament poetry and wisdom literature or, or the Old Testament prophetic literature, which was a, a message delivered to a group of people, either in person or um, um, by writing. The Gospels seek to tell the story of the, the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, you have three, which we call the synoptic Gospels. Synopsis simply means together sight. So together, they, they work together to, to, to give us this picture of the life of Jesus from his birth to his death to his resurrection. And then you have John's very distinct from that. John written later than the other three Gospels that sought to go back into the life and ministry of Jesus and give us details that were not included in the other three Gospels. Uh, John's very unique in what's recorded and not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, About 90% of Mark is recorded in Matthew also. About 50% of Mark is recorded in Luke. And so some may say, well, then why not just study one of those bigger books and get most of Mark? In the process, and that's essentially how the early church viewed, or rather, the, the entire history of the church viewed the Gospel of Mark. It was overlooked for hundreds of years by the church because they were like, "Well, it's in Matthew, it's in Luke, it's so short, it's kind of insignificant. Why bother?" Until the 1800s, and they discovered that Mark was actually the first gospel recorded, the earliest gospel that was written, and all of a sudden, it's important again. It already was important, but they, the church, recognized how important it was. So Mark was the first one written shortly followed by Matthew and Luke, and then John later written a couple decades after that. All four Gospels written and circulating in the early church before 100 AD. Um, Essentially, you can imagine the Holy Spirit inspiring John to to see what Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote, and then go back and add details about the life of Jesus that they they did not include. And so you get some of the the deep details of Jesus' life, long conversations, long teachings in the Gospel of John, uh, for instance, eight of the 21 chapters of the Gospel of John occur on the last night of Jesus' life. Very long conversations with his closest followers. Well, you don't get that in the other Gospels. They move much quicker through his life, especially Mark. None of the Gospels have the purpose of recording everything Jesus did. In fact, John tells us at the end of his Gospels, you can almost imagine that people are asking John, like, John, you're the last apostle. Why don't you just write everything Jesus did? And John tells us in in John chapter 20 that we can't. Not all the books of the world could contain everything that Jesus did. But here's enough. Here's enough to know who this man was. Here's enough to follow this man and give your life for this man. So why do we have the differences in the Gospels? Why can you read an account of the same event in two or three or four of the Gospels and get such distinctiveness? And why aren't they just like identical retellings of something? I mean, if, if all these guys were there, the two, three, four eyewitnesses were there... So why isn't the story the same? Why are the stories so unique? Well, imagine that you go online tomorrow to read about the big game, the Super Bowl tonight. And, you know, you're a Broncos fan, you're rooting for Peyton Manning, and you want to read about his victory, his second Super Bowl win, uh, his last Super Bowl before he retires. And so you go to a Broncos blog, fan blog, to read about somebody who was there at the game from his perspective about Peyton Manning's 
final Super Bowl victory before he retires. And then you're like, well, I wonder what national media is saying about this. And so then you go to a national sports site like Sports Illustrated because you want to read from the perspective of somebody who has the entire sports culture in his, in his view. And then you, you're on Facebook and you catch an article that seems interesting to you about the food that was being uh, cooked in the parking lot at the game before the game as people were tailgating or the food that was served in the stadiums. And so there's a, there's a link to an article on Food Network by a food reporter about all the different food that was at the Super Bowl. And then lastly, uh, you're interested in the economic impact of the Super Bowl. And so you go read from business uh, investors or Business Daily about the, the economic impact of the Super Bowl on Santa Clara and the surrounding counties in California. And so you're reading about the same game from four different perspectives, they were all there, so all of their details would be identical, right? <clears throat> no. You got four people with four personalities writing to four different audiences for four different reasons. So they'll get the big stuff right. You know, there, there was a Super Bowl, it happened in Santa Clara at Levi Stadium between the Panthers and the Broncos, and uh, the, the Broncos won uh, 20-17, and uh, and Peyton Manning had this many yards, and Nan Newton had this many yards, and there were this many touchdowns, et cetera, et cetera. They get the big details right, but all the other specifics will be varied depending on the audience that they're writing to and the purpose for their writing. So, guys, it's the same thing with the Gospels. You have four different writers for four, writing from four different perspectives, writing to four different audiences for four different re reasons. Um, with that in mind, it would, in fact, be quite strange... If they recorded, like, the feeding of the 5,000, which is one of the few stories that is included in all four Gospels, if, if you read four accounts of that and it was identical, it'd almost be like they got together and cooked up the details, cooked up the story, and said, okay, everybody put it down just like this because we don't want anybody to question what happened. In fact, it's the distinctiveness, the uniqueness of the Gospels that adds their validity. Because it wasn't four guys cooking this up, trying to get all the details right so everybody would believe them and not question them. It was just four guys who were there. This is how I saw it. And this is how I saw it in a way that would be meaningful to the people that I'm writing to. How do we even get the Gospel of Mark? Where did the early church get this letter? How did it become part of the Bible? Well, guys, we take it for granted that the Bible is so accessible to us. I mean, we swipe, we push a button, the Bible pops up. We can even have somebody read it to us if we don't have time to sit down and read it while we're driving in our cars, while we're getting ready in the morning. It hasn't always been like that. In fact, for most humans who've ever lived, for most humans, in fact, in the world today, for most people who've ever existed in the history of the church, it hasn't been like that. So think about the Old Testament, 39 books written over 1,000 years, uh, with the last book, Malachi, written around 440 B.C. And from that point until the days of Jesus, God did not speak. No more messages from God through his prophets. No more writings uh, from God through his prophets to his people or through the priests to his people or the kings to his people. 400 years, there was absolute silence. And during those 400 years, they finished collecting, gathering, assembling the Old Testament um, by the Jewish people into, into what we call the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament because it wasn't a New Testament, right? They just called it the scriptures or they called it the law and the prophets or Moses, the law and the prophets or whatever. But um, they, they would gather that together until 400 years after Malachi was written, this guy shows up wearing camel's hair, eating locusts, and looking kind of crazy, and starts saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Repent and be baptized. I'm not the Messiah, John the baptizer said, but I'm pointing you to the one who is coming, who is the one. 
And then Jesus shows up, as we'll see. And John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he baptizes Jesus, and Jesus' ministry starts. And he goes through the next three years, demonstrating who he is, teaching the people about the kingdom of God, teaching them about who he was, laying down his life willingly, lovingly for his, for, for, for his people, uh, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven. Those 40 days in which he was resurrected before he ascended, he spent time teaching his disciples about the kingdom of heaven. He ascends into heaven. His people are left. The, the 12 disciples minus Judas plus Matthias and about 100 other people in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell. They leave the room. They go proclaim the gospel to the people of Jerusalem. And 3,000 people were saved. One day, the church is born. And they begin to meet daily. They begin to gather, share life uh, together. They begin to, to, to gather together daily to hear the apostles' teaching, to break the bread, to, to fellowship together, to, to do life together. And then the church begins to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So that by the end of the book of Acts, you have the church scattered all over the Roman Empire and in the capital city of the world, Rome. And as these churches were spreading throughout the Roman Empire, being planted primarily by a guy by the name of Paul... Paul begins to, to hear word from people. Okay, they've got questions. Let me write them a letter to answer their questions. They need encouragement. Let me write a letter to Timothy to encourage him. They need instruction. Let me write some, some instructions to Titus to know how to pastor that church. And then Peter starts writing some letters to the people that he had pastored. And, and the, the, the writer of Hebrews begins writing letters to answer the questions that, that were presented to him or to preach the sermon, rather, that, that he wanted to preach to his people. And, and the letter of Jude and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John begins circulating in the church to help the church grow and be healthy. And Revelation eventually is, is added to these, these, this canon of letters. And, and then the Holy Spirit also inspires men to write down about the life of Jesus so they wouldn't lose it. It's being shared there are people still alive who remember Jesus, who saw Jesus resurrected. But these people are going to die. So let's write down what these eyewitnesses have seen so it can be preserved in the, in the church and, and spread on from generation to generation to generation. These stories, these gospels originally written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about who Jesus was and what Jesus did. These were copied and copied and copied. You don't have the originals. Passed along with the rest of the letters written by Paul and the others over the next 100 years, these 27 books became identified by, by, by the church in what we call the New Testament. These were, there were other letters written that were not viewed by the early church as similarly authentic, authoritative, as important. So, for instance, we know that Paul... Uh, what we have is First and Second Corinthians is actually Second and Fourth Corinthians. There were four letters he wrote. He mentions those other two letters in what we have. But the early church didn't think that they were authoritative in the same way or as important. And so the Holy Spirit inspired them not to preserve those letters, but to preserve what we do have. We know that there were other letters that were written not by the, the men of God who were writing these letters, but by men outside of the church called the, the Gnostic Gospels. And the early church saw those and recognized that those were attacks by the enemy to, to dilute the truth about who Jesus was, that they were ridiculous and crazy sounding, that it wasn't a true revelation of Jesus, but it was people who had their agenda. They, didn't, they wanted people to not believe in Jesus as fully God, fully man. So they wanted to dilute the gospel message and the truth of who Christ was. So the early church said, nope, those are, those are false. So it's funny when here we, 2,000 years later, all of a sudden discover some of these Gnostic letters, well... Well, we think they should be included. Well, those people were there when they were written, and they didn't think they should be included. What do we know 2,000 years later? 
So by the mid-100s, the early church was really forced to nail down who the, what these 27 books were because a, a heretic by the name of Marcion showed up, and Marcion didn't believe that the Jesus of the New Testament was the same as the God of the Old Testament. So Marcion wanted to do away with all the Old Testament, not just the Old Testament scriptures, but any time in the New Testament it referred to the Old Testament scriptures to point to the fact that Jesus was God. Let's get rid of those scriptures in the New Testament. So he just started cutting and pasting the New Testament. And the early church, I mean, he had a following, but the early church immediately recognized, like, this is not good. So Marcion's doing this. He's saying only these books are authoritative, not those books. So we, as the early church leaders, have come out and said, no, these are the 27 books. These books were always in, have always been in, and uh, were recognized by the early church as the authoritative canon of Scripture. It wasn't done hundreds of years later by committees of people who were politicizing the process and I get, you know, I'll vote for you if you vote for me type thing. This was done by the early church on their own, guided by the Holy Spirit, recognizing which letters, which books were authentic, inspired, and worthy of being obeyed and passed along and preserved by the church. Worthy to stand alongside the Old Testament scriptures they already had. And so in that process, God inspired Mark to sit down and write the story of Jesus. So that it could be remembered and preserved and passed on. How do we know it was Mark? Well, did Mark tell us? Some, some of the people did tell us it was them. John identified himself. Luke identified himself. Paul did in most of his letters. But some books the authors didn't say, hey, this is, this is Mark. Mark didn't. How do we know it was Mark? Well, the, the best evidence points to Mark. So you had these men that we call early church fathers. They were leaders in the church after the apostles had, had died and, and gone on to be with Jesus. All right? These men were not um, some part of this apostolic succession where they alone had access to God or anything like that. These men were just leaders of the church, pastors of the church, just like you have pastors in your church. And these early church fathers, very early on, were writing unanimously that the gospel of Mark was written by Mark. This gospel we're attributing to this man named Mark. In fact, Papias was the earliest writer of this. Papias lived from 60 to 135 AD. He actually knew the Apostle John. And Papias was the first one to write this letter, this recording of the life of Jesus was written by Mark. That's what we've always known, what we've always believed. So even though he didn't identify himself, sometimes they wouldn't do that because of humility. He didn't identify himself. We're telling you this is who wrote it. This man named Mark. So who was Mark? Mark was a Jewish Christian whose mother Mary owned the large home in Jerusalem and her house became a frequent meeting place for the early church. So in Acts chapter 12, Peter is, is released from prison by an angel in this miraculous escape and he goes to a home. He goes to the home of Mark. That's where the church was meeting and praying for Peter to be released. Later in Acts chapter 12, Barnabas and Paul were headed out on a missionary uh, journey to plant churches, to encourage churches. And Barnabas said, hey, I've got this cousin Mark. Why don't we bring him? And Paul says, yeah, let's bring Mark. And so they take off in Acts 12 and go spread the gospel. At some point in that journey, Mark quits. Mark abandons him. He gets homesick, scared, afraid, whatever, whatever it was, he just abandons him. So in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas had come back. They rested up, were encouraged, they're going out again. And Barnabas said, hey, let's get my cousin Mark to go with us again. And Paul's like, no, he's a quitter. I don't take quitters with me. And Barnabas 
kind of bows up against Paul. We can't, you know, I don't know exactly what happened, but there was a, a huge disagreement so that Paul and Silas go on a missionary journey and Barnabas and Mark go on a missionary journey. And we know that at some point in time, Mark and Paul were reconciled because at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, he says that Mark was useful to me, bring him to me. So whatever happened in Mark's life, whatever repentance he demonstrated, whatever Paul saw that, at the end of his life, they were reconciled and, 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 and they were able to be, be together again. But church tradition tells us that Mark would later travel to Egypt and become the first pastor of one of the important churches in the history of the church, the church in Alexandria. And then one other interesting thing about Mark, he had the nickname of Stubby Fingers. That was his nickname by the early church because he had small hands. So the gospel of Stubby Fingers. Uh, sorry, Stump Finger. That's a little better. Uh, another widespread opinion of the early church that everyone agreed was that Mark wrote through the influence of Peter, one of the original apostles. In fact, there are interesting details in Mark that would only have come from an eyewitness. For instance, when Jesus was asleep in the boat during the storm, he was laying his head on a pillow. Probably not a detail you include unless you were there. And Peter was there. Peter shares this story to Mark. The Holy Spirit's inspiring the whole process. And we get the perspective of Peter. And it's fitting. You know, Mark and Peter. Mark quit on Paul. Mark is reconciled to Paul. Peter denied Christ. Peter is reconciled to Christ. Uh, Mark is the gospel of action. Mark is the fastest-paced gospel. Um, Jesus is presented in the gospel of Mark as a man of action. We know Jesus mainly in the gospel of Mark by what he does, more than what he says. You have the fewest number of teaching verses in the gospel of Mark compared to the other gospels, but you have Jesus constantly doing things. Um, You get to know Jesus by what he does more than what he says. Forty-two times alone, the word translated as immediately shows up in, in Mark. Hardly used in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, the word immediately. Seven times in the first chapter alone, just immediately this, immediately that. The word translated as again occurs 26 times. The uh, 12 of the 16 chapters begin with the word and. The historical present tense, hardly used at all in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, are used 150 times in the Gospel of Mark. So it's, it's almost like you imagine a, a four-year-old on Christmas morning hyped up on sugar candy telling you about all the presents under the tree. And, and this, and then I got this, and then this happened, and then, and then we went over there, and then I saw this tree under that, and I opened this, and, 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 and. That's the Gospel of Mark. Just fast-paced. Lots of, of details are included that aid to the, the oral telling of these stories. Lots of imagery and, and, and pictures that the, that the Gospel writer is trying to paint in your mind as you tell the story of Jesus. That's the Gospel of Mark. And then who were they writing to? Who was Mark writing to? It's always an important question. There's evidence in the New Testament that uh, these people who are writing these letters knew that they were writing something on level with the Old Testament Scriptures. So they knew that what they were writing was legit, valid, authoritative. But they didn't know that they were writing a letter that would be read by a church plant in Monroe, Louisiana 2,000 years later. I've got to address some issues because those guys in Monroe need some help, right? They were writing to a specific audience. And so whenever you study scripture, taking into account the audience they're writing to is really important because it had to mean something to them first. You can't have interpretations that would have meant nothing to the original audience. So we know that Mark was with Peter in Rome, according to 1 Peter 5.13, where Peter writes, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark my son. So Babylon is this common way of referring to the, the city of Rome in the New Testament, kind of like a secret way, like, like Michael Scorn or, 
or he who must not be named. Like you know who he's talking about without saying his name, right? Um, And then you see this close relationship between Mark and Peter as he calls him my son. And we know that Peter, as well as Paul, were part of the Christians killed in Rome around 65 AD by the Emperor Nero. So all this is going on when Mark is in Rome and Mark is writing to these Roman Christians. In fact, Roman historians tell us that Christians in Rome were really not drawing much attention. They were like viewed as this weird religious sect. They wouldn't go to the pagan temples and worship the false gods. They kind of kept to themselves. But they weren't like drawing negative attention from the Romans yet until 64 AD in the fire. A lot of people know about the, the fire of Nero. Rome was, was swept by fire that was aided by high winds. Ten of the 14 wards or districts of Rome were, were covered in fire. Three of the, the, the wards of Rome were completely blanketed by fire, ashes. Seven wards, most of the important historical buildings were, were burned to the ground. So the people in Rome were like, how did this happen? Where did this fire come from? And Nero is getting a lot of attention. Crazy Emperor Nero. Like people think he may have done it for his own political and power-hungry power desires. So Nero, like any good politician, needs somebody to blame. So let's blame these obscure, weird sect of believers over here called Christians who follow this, this uh, Jewish Messiah who claimed to have risen from the dead. And Roman historians write that, that as Nero began to arrest and condemn these Christians uh, that were considered antisocial because they wouldn't participate in the pagan rituals... They were condemned, they were dressed in wild animal skins and fed to wild animals to be torn apart. They would be crucified and actually the the crosses would line the road as these people would be hung up to die. They would be uh, dipped into vats of oil, stuck on, on spikes and lit on fire to light the pathways by this crazy Emperor Nero. And it was in these these persecutions of Christians, these killing of Christians in which Paul and Peter were, were killed which many of the other Christians that Mark knew were killed. And it was to these Christians going through this persecution that Mark originally wrote his letter. So what is he writing to these Christians? Well, we're going to take the next 18 months and walk through that. But today, to give you this 30,000 foot view of the gospel of Mark, we've tried to encapsulate that in the title, The Servant King. Mark can be basically split in half, right, in chapter 8. The first half is the arrival of this king. From the the first message we'll look in a few weeks, uh, we'll see miracles. We'll see casting out of demons, confronting religious hypocrites, calling his disciples, demonstrating power over creation, feeding the 5,000, preaching over and over. You have this, this very demonstrative, strong declaration. Here is the king. Here is his kingdom. Here is what he's come to bring. This is what his kingdom looks like. This is what his kingdom feels like. Tastes like, smells like, sounds like. Here's the kind of people that he's producing and creating and calling to follow him. Here is the king. It's amazing. It's mind-blowing. It's astounding. It's summed up well in Mark 2.12. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We've never saw anything like this. And they hadn't. They had never seen anything like this. And if Jesus would have continued to feed them and protect them and do miracles and heal them and keep them alive, he could have gotten the entire nation of Israel to march on Rome. That's what the Messiah would do if they got the Messiah that they wanted. That's what they were expecting. Which is why most of them, even today, miss miss him. They miss their king. 
They didn't see that this great, mighty king of the universe was, was given a mission not to conquer through the sword, but to conquer through sacrifice, service, and suffering, and giving his life as a ransom for many. And so most of the second half of Mark, it turns from the crowds and the spectacle to, to more intensely focus on his closest followers, to spend time with his closest followers. In fact, in the second half of Mark, only two miracles were recorded that Jesus did for others. He'd no longer be moving away to the Gentile regions. He'd be moving from the Gentile regions, going to Jerusalem, constantly revealing his purpose was to come and suffer for others. Throughout Mark, the first and second half, Jesus is in control. He's not a good, nice, humble rabbi who's caught up in the political machine of the Jews and Romans, who's crucified against his will. All through the process, he's in control. So in the second half of Mark, you're going to see three predictions of his death and resurrection. Like he, He's telling them, this is about to happen. This is coming. I'm just letting you know so you know that I'm in control. And so this change in Mark from the first half to the second half, this hinge on these, which these two doors swing, happens in chapter 8 with this confession of Peter that I asked you to turn to like an hour ago. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So a book written primarily to a Gentile audience with some Jewish background, we'll get into that, has this leading disciple confessing the identity of Jesus in a Gentile land, Caesarea Philippi. And then this section of Mark closes with Jesus on the cross in Mark chapter 15 with another Gentile confessing about the nature and identity of this man Jesus by saying, truly this man was the Son of God. All through Mark, you have Jesus revealing himself in a variety of ways, and you have people responding to him in a variety of ways. And what's interesting is that those who seemingly had the advantage often responded to Jesus with the least amount of faith and understanding. His disciples, we see their failures more in this gospel than any other gospel, which is fitting because Peter is the voice behind it. His family, not a clue. The religious leaders, they had all the intellectual knowledge, completely missed him. It was the desperate who most often saw Jesus clearly. And the only group that totally got Jesus right all the time, 100% of the time, they understood who he was, were the demons. They're the ones who truly knew he was a king. Oh, he may be disguised like a suffering servant, but we know this is the king. And so what about you? We who know the most, seemingly we have all the advantage because of our knowledge of the, the scriptures. We have access to the scriptures like never before. We also could make the mistake of coming to Mark academically, checking the box. Oh, yes, I've heard these stories. I've heard these tales. I can intellectually affirm everything these stories reveal about the nature, identity, and character of Christ. I got Mark. And yet we could totally miss it if we're not careful. 
my favorite seminary professor by far, Dr. Chuck Quarles, told us a story in class one day. Brilliant New Testament Greek scholar. He's at Southeastern now in North Carolina. Um, about a time when he was at school in Ole Miss in an undergraduate program, and he met a guy in the library, got to talking to him, finds out that he had walked away from the faith in Christ, grew up in church. I think his dad was even a minister in a church or maybe a pastor, but got to college, and he's like, I'm done with all that. Why are you done with all that? I just don't believe it's true. Why not? I just don't believe that Jesus is truly God. I think he's just a good man, and the church added this identity to him that he never really understood himself. Common criticism against Christianity. And Dr. Quarles, even as a college student, took this man to the Gospel of Mark and began to walk him through how Jesus knew clearly who he was and was very precise about how he revealed that and to who he revealed that so that he could have full confidence, we can have full confidence that Jesus is who he said he is and he did what the Bible says that he did. That, that this is not just a religion that's been created to have power over people. That it really happened. So don't get the Bible. Don't get Mark. Don't check the academic intellectual box over the next 18 months and miss Jesus. It's all about him. Um, this past week I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon and um, he was talking about how Amazing it was that the early church lost, essentially, the tomb of Jesus. Like they, You can go over there today and have a tour guide take you to what they say is the tomb, but nobody really knows if that was the tomb. And so in the first couple hundred years, the early church essentially lost the tomb of Jesus. And he was amazed about how that was possible, but his, it was actually, he said, his wife, who kind of enlightened him to this, he, he said his wife sat him down and said, it's kind of like this, you have, you have kids at home, and you walk into your kid's room, and what do you see? You see often a mess, something that needs to be done, picked up, cleaned up. You see beds that need to be gotten in at a certain time so they can pull the covers up around their chin and go to sleep. The lights out at a certain time. You see things that need to be done, things that need to be organized. It's, that's how you view the room that your kids live in. But when your kids leave, maybe for a week to go to camp, maybe to go to college, or, or worse yet, if you lose one of your children to death, you view their room completely differently. You, you walk into their room and you, and you see memories of this person. This is where they did that. This is where they said that. This is where they used to lay and read. In fact, for people who lose their children to death, often they don't want to touch those rooms. They'll preserve them almost like a shrine. They don't want to get rid of their clothes, their books, nothing. Just leave it the way it was so I can remember when they were there. So why, if they venerated Jesus so much, why did the early church lose the tomb of Jesus? It seems like they would have turned it into a shrine to remember him, to come and visit, to talk about the things that he did. Unless they still had him. Unless he had never truly left them. Unless because the Spirit of God indwelt them, they, they had Christ. They didn't need to venerate some room to have memories about him they had Christ. So do you have Jesus in the same way, church? Do you have the presence of Christ? Is this just religious, ritual, routine? Or is this a vibrant relationship with Jesus that captivates your heart, that drives mission, sacrifice, love, forgiveness, repentance of sin? Do you have 
Jesus. Yes, the gospel is this big story of God working in all the creation and God calling the people to himself. It is corporate, but the gospel is also individual. Examine yourselves. Do you know that Christ Jesus is alive in you and you've been made alive in him? That your relationship with Jesus is real and active and vibrant because you're captivated by this king who came to serve uh, we're going to share in, in the Lord's Supper and in communion together in a few minutes. But uh, let's just pray and ask God to convict where he needs to convict. Father, we, we thank you for the Gospel of Mark. We're, we're excited. We can't wait to walk through this book to be captivated once again by this man, Jesus. Fully God, fully man, who came and willingly, lovingly lived this perfect, sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and then rose from the dead. Offering us salvation, forgiveness, freedom, hope, life. We thank you that he is still alive. <clears throat> and he dwells within his people. His church. And that his life is moving through us to our city and to the nations. And so Father, help us. Help us to know with full confidence that we've been made alive in Christ. Help us to then be unleashed to boldly go and declare Christ to people that we are in life with. Help the reality of the gospel to show true transformation as we follow him. And where we fall short, Father, bring conviction so there can be repentance and restoration. We pray, Father, that would happen today. And if salvation needs to happen today, we pray that, that you would make that happen today. And we ask all these things in the strong and powerful name of Christ. Amen.